Our second lesson comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. Listen now for the word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the fire, the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? I need it. Holy One, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We long for this, for you are our rock and without a doubt our redeemer. Amen. Choose life. This is Moses' plea to Israel on the eve of her entry into the promised land. We just heard it this afternoon from Deuteronomy. It's, it's Moses' farewell address. 
You see, see, Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of slavery. And by the power and grace of God, they have crossed the Red Sea. They've wandered 40 years in the desert. And at last, they have come to the border of the promised land, a land of freedom and a land of hope. Moses is old and near death. He knows he will not be able to go there with them. And so he goes up to the mountain and gives his farewell address. He chooses his words carefully. As you go into this new land of promise, he says, Behold, I set before you this day life and death. And you must choose. I set before you life and death. And what is life? Life is is to do God's will. Life is to love the Lord your God, to walk in God's ways. Life is to obey God's commandments. That's life. That really is life. Choose life that you and your children may live. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus stands on his own mountaintop and addresses a crowd of people who have been trying to do just that, to choose life, trying to obey these commandments and follow the Lord. But somewhere along the way, God's law became less of a relational thing and more of a business thing. It became less covenantal and more contractual. Do you know what I mean? Like, we know that these commandments lead to life, but the problem is, is when we chafe under them as if they're an old school teacher's rules. We chafe under them or or we just ignore them, that's common. Or maybe, maybe the worst thing we do when it comes to God's commandments is we pick and choose. We say, these are interesting, but these aren't that interesting. And the ones we get really interested in are always something we don't personally struggle with, but other people do. And so we pull those out like, oh yeah, this is an important commandment for those people. We begin weaponizing God's commandments. Growing up, I was taught that the law, especially the Ten Commandments, are there because they're God's prescription for our lives. People would say that the word Bible stood for basic instructions before leaving earth. You ever heard that? Just me? Basically, the importance of the Bible is that it gives us a checklist of all the things we're supposed to do, usually the things we're supposed to avoid, in order to be good followers of Jesus. I imagine that the folks who were listening to Jesus that day on a hillside might have thought the same. They knew there was a list of rules, the law, to follow, 
And now this new dynamic rabbi Jesus was going to help them understand those rules once and for all so that they can get them right. And Jesus, master teacher that he is, begins with what everybody knows. Don't murder, check. Don't commit adultery, check. Don't get divorced, check. Don't be dishonest, check. There it is, right in front of us, black and white, the rules clearly spelled out in the law, and if we are good, godly people, we'll obey all of them to the letter, right? Check, check, check. But then, Jesus does what he always does, turns things on their heads, and makes us think in totally new and radical ways. Or as my grandfather would say, Jesus has quit preaching and gone to meddling. He starts in, you've heard that it was said that you shall not murder, but I say murder is not the real issue, is it? We all know we shouldn't kill each other, but what about anger and hateful words? That's where it all starts, isn't it? How many of you hang on to your anger for dear life, cling to outrage, and nurse a grudge, or two, or three? You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say we all know that. Here's the less obvious. How often do you look at other people in ways that objectify them? or see them as disposable sources for your own pleasure. You don't have to actually technically commit adultery to do that. You do it all the time. Or you've heard that it was said, don't get divorced. But I say even though the law allows you men to initiate divorce for any reason you please, do you realize what happens to the most vulnerable people, women and children, in our society when you do that? Yes, the law is a good reminder to honor the promises you make when you get married, but more than that, don't treat people like possessions that you can just cast off when you're tired of them. You've heard that it was said to make sure you avoid taking oaths you don't intend to keep. But I say we should speak and act truthfully in all of our dealings so that we don't need to make oaths at all. If ever there was a mic drop moment. I mean, there goes our checklist. Jesus sounds somewhat extreme here. I mean, surely we're not supposed to take these hyperbolic and demanding things at face value. Surely, it cannot be that thinking a mean thought about someone is the equivalent to murdering her. I mean, surely our thoughts, the thoughts we keep to ourselves and never even speak of, much less act on, surely those thoughts are less important than our actions. And not only less important than our actions, surely those thoughts are less controllable than our actions. I mean, I'm betting most of you in this room, you've made it this far in life without murdering anybody. 
We can't reasonably be held responsible for being angry with someone, can we? In the third and fourth centuries, a group of Christians we now call the Desert Fathers did their best to try and meet that expectation. First, out of a spirit of renunciation, they left their lives in the cities of the Roman Empire in order to go and live out in the deserts of Syria and Egypt. They did so because they believed that their possessions, their position in society, and all the trappings of a marriage and family, they, they all interfered with their ability to do God's will. And so they went to the desert to fast and live quietly. It sounds amazing right now with four kids. <laughs> However, when they got there, they noticed that they were still burdened by their thoughts. Burden of their possessions, thoughts of their retirement savings, the theater, their holiday plans, thoughts buzzed all around them, thoughts of loneliness and safety, small resentments about how the monk in the hut down the road had a nicer mat and a better view. These desert fathers may have escaped the city, but they could not escape their own thoughts. And so they developed a way to retrain their thoughts. And this thought retraining process has three steps. Notice, quarantine, and replace. Step one, before you can stop thinking a thought, you first have to notice you are having it. Notice that you are stuck in thoughts of anger or lust or envy or gloom. Notice the story that you are telling yourself, the story that has come to seem so basic and true that it no, no longer seems like a story anymore. Then after you've noticed all of that, step two, Deliberately set that thought aside. Maybe just for 10 minutes. You might say, I can come back to it in half an hour if I want to, but for now, I'm walking away from it. Quarantining it. And then step three. Replace that thought with a prayer. Replace it with a focus on God. Notice quarantine, replace. This thought retraining sounds like what Jesus is talking about in today's text. He's, he's highlighting a connection between our thoughts and our actions that is always there. He's not talking about rule keeping here. Jesus here doesn't seem too interested in us keeping the rules. No, what Jesus is interested in is, you know, what's in your heart? How do you think about other people? That's where it starts. Like Moses, Jesus knows that we must choose life or death. But Jesus here is concerned with 
how we choose? What is the source of our choice? We live in an age of choices. In fact, an entire science has emerged around the study of choice. Sheena Ainga, a researcher and author of the book, The Art of Choosing, says that what we've discovered is that in order for people to understand the differences between their choices, they have to be able to understand the consequences associated with each choice, and that the consequences need to be felt in a vivid, concrete sort of way. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing out that our choices involve far more than a surface agreement of external obedience. To choose life, to live the letter of the law, we have to first get to the heart of it, which means that we will have to face our own hearts as well. While choosing life may be the most obvious choice, choosing death is by far the easiest. Death, it's not simply the end of life. As biblical interpreter Brett Younger puts it, death is a slow process of giving ourselves to what does not matter. And those things surely erode our souls. So, so when we choose apathy instead of engagement, we die a little. When we choose to be indifferent so that we don't come off as different, we die a little. When our stances on certain issues mean more to us than our relationships with others, we die a little. When we choose silence, in the face of injustice, we die a little. There are a thousand ways to die before the end of our life. Every time we draw a line between ourselves and others, it leads to death. The death of people, the death of relationships, the death of a covenant-shaped community. A couple of years ago at the National Prayer Breakfast, a guy by the name of Arthur Brooks quoted this passage. Brooks is a social scientist at Harvard and a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And he gave this amazing speech to our nation's leaders at the National Prayer Breakfast. I, I encourage you to catch a video of it. In it, he says, if there is to be a downfall of this great nation, it will be because of what he calls the crisis of contempt and polarization, which is tearing our country apart. You know what he means? There's a crisis of contempt and polarization that's tearing our country apart. And then, as a follower of Jesus, he quoted from today's passage, re recalling Jesus' words to love your enemies, be kind to those who are unkind to you. 
problem is, is too often we hear that and we think the solution is to avoid talking about divisive things, right? Just avoid those conversations and actions that are potentially divisive. But Jesus says no. It's deeper than that. For Jesus, it starts with thoughts, those alone thoughts, those isolate from my neighbor's thoughts. And Jesus here suggests something different than simply, let's not talk about it. He says, if, if someone has a problem with you, leave your offering in the aisle or beside your place in the pew. And after you do that, go and find that person and be reconciled first. And then only after that happens, come back and give your gift to God. In other words, don't even give your offering until your relationships are made right again. Notice, quarantine, replace. And that's really what it boils down to. You see, if murder was a cover for not having to deal with conflict, if adultery and divorce are a cover for not having to deal with conflict, if swearing falsely is a cover for not having to deal with conflict, Jesus here in the heart of his sermon is saying, deal with it. Deal with it. And since y'all, I'm speaking from Jesus' point of view, since y'all lost the sight that the Torah was a gift from God to keep the imaginations of deadly conflict at bay, let me interpret the Torah in a way that will shine light on where the dealing with it starts. In 1939, Time Magazine featured the two most influential women in America. One was Eleanor Roosevelt, and the other, Dorothy Thompson, the American journalist, the first American journalist to be expelled from Nazi Germany. And she said this, she said, peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of creative alternatives for responding to conflict, alternatives to passive or aggressive responses, alternatives to violence. That guy, Arthur Brooks, who spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, he, he closed his wonderful talk with a, a pretty creative alternative to conflict. He said, in this world where crisis of contempt and polarization are tearing this country apart, he issued a bold challenge. He said, I want to invite you to be missionaries for love in the face of contempt. Missionaries for love in the face of contempt. I love that. It speaks to the heart of what Jesus is getting at, to be a missionary for love in the face of contempt. And what's interesting about missionaries is that they don't stay in the, the privacy of their living room and just think, well, I love everyone. No, missionaries, what they do is they, they get on a boat, they, they get on a plane, they go somewhere to be a missionary, and they do something. 
can't be a missionary in the privacy of your own home or in your own echo chamber. What would it mean for us to be missionaries for love in the face of contempt? It sounds so much harder than checking off a checklist. It sounds painful. It sounds messy. It means that we would have to deal with the anger that we've not allowed ourselves to fully feel or the anger that we've nursed for too long. It means we would have to tend to the little breaks in our relationships before they become gulfs. We are all just regular broken people after all. It's a tall order to hear that before we can bring our offering forward, we're to seek out those with whom we have conflict and try to make it right. Frankly, for some of us, that might be hard to imagine in our own family life, let alone in our congregation or our community. Take just a second and bring to mind someone with whom you have conflict. Can you imagine trying to make that right before participating in worship again? Did I just kill next week's attendance? Seriously, what would happen if everyone in our country who claims to be Christian took these words from Jesus seriously? What would happen if, if everyone in our very angry and fractured country who claims to be Christian purposely sought out just one person with whom they have a conflict and tried to repair that relationship? It may seem difficult to imagine, but that doesn't mean we're excused from trying. I wonder how we as a church could order our life so that anger never gets to fester. In these highly inflammatory days, are there ways that we could change the mode of discourse in our church and in our nation from being right to being vulnerable? How might we as disciples and as a congregation speak in a voice primarily driven by love and light, as Susan mentioned last week, being salty, as a counter-testimony to the voices of anger and hate. What would that look like for us as a church? What would happen if we treated our passing of the peace as an opportunity to get right with each other? Or maybe if, if you have a conflict with someone who's not a part of this body, perhaps you use that time on Sunday before worship to reach out asking for an honest conversation in which you could seek reconciliation. What would happen if we made broken relationships, repairing those broken relationships, a priority each week? Be something, wouldn't it? It might not change our larger culture immediately, but I'd love for us to try it before we toss it aside on the pile we all keep 
that pile called things Jesus says to do, but we know no one possibly could. Because that day Jesus preached his sermon on the mount, he wasn't merely talking about following the law. He was talking about ushering in the kingdom of heaven. This strange, beautiful reality in which we are healed and by which our world is transformed. The kingdom isn't something you do. It's something you receive. Something you choose to receive. God knows we've chosen death so many times. And yet, the God of grace brings us back to the border and lets us choose again. I set before you this day life and death. Choose life. Amen.